Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And we're Slapping Glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former coach of the Memphis Grizzlies and New York Knicks, David Fisdale. Coach Fisdale is here today to discuss how he prepares for interviews, as well as what he looks for in hiring assistants, the intricacies of transition basketball, understanding screening angles and exit points, teaching leadership to young players, and of course, take part in overrated or underrated. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy this conversation with Coach David Fisdale. want to start with hiring and how you prepare for an interview when you're trying to get hired as a coach. It starts off with who you are. You know, what is your basketball philosophy? Organizing that in a coherent manner. Um, I think something that, you know, I've I've found that's really worked and it sounds almost uh, too simplistic, but I've always tried to find the common Bread and what I believe in basketball philosophy, offense, defense, culture, all that stuff, and what that roster that the team has and what that front office is trying to build. I try to marry the two in the interview and show them how this can work. Um, and I found that that has that's that's really provided me with some some uh, some success. But that also takes preparation, and your preparation means you have to know their roster inside out analytically you need to watch the film uh you need to know their cap situation or if it's a college job the scholarship situations and things like that um and and you need to understand where that team has run into serious roadblocks before you know what's knocked them off their rocker so it takes some 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 real detailed investigative work it takes time um, you know, I remember prepping for the Memphis job. It was a, I had a one day cram because we had gotten knocked out of the playoffs to go to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, and we had literally had a day to prepare for the final interview and Spo got a room for me and we just built a war room of Memphis Grizzlies and, you know, what I believe and just, and I really had to process all this. I had film on my laptop. I like to build it out in a PowerPoint setting. I really believe, you know, we, I was talking to some, some, one of my buddies who just interviewed for a few head coaching jobs, NBA head coaching jobs. And I talked, asked him about his presentation, and it was interesting because uh, it's been guys who have done it who, who are, like, moving their PowerPoint through and having to stop and do stuff. And, I, you know, it's really important. It was always important for me to be hands-free, Right. And so to have a remote control or something that you can move it where you can talk and engage face to face with your audience, whether it's an AD, an owner, a GM, uh, a principal at a school, whatever level you're coaching on. I just feel like when you're presenting, you want to be able to engage uh, eye to eye, uh, face to face and be able to talk about it without looking at it. That is for them. (laughs) Right. You don't yeah. need I know that stuff inside and out. Like I can tell you everything that's on that thing, on that PowerPoint behind me, uh, you know, but understanding that's for them. And so you can engage because what the other thing that people would do is they give the, the people that they're presenting to laptops or, or uh, iPads, right? They put their whole presentation on iPads and they hand it out to all of the people in the room. And now you got these people looking, flicking through your stuff and you're talking, no, put it up on the big screen. Don't give them anything that's going to take them away from what you have to say. 
That is what they're there for. They don't want they they can read basketball on anything. They need to hear it from you that you understand it, that it's yours, that it belongs to you. You really understand their situation and how we can make this work. In regards to the PowerPoint, what are you actually putting on the slides? Because obviously you mentioned you don't want to take their attention away. Is it just bullet points and then you'll elaborate because you don't want them also, I assume, reading the whole time either? Yeah, I try to make it vague because uh, I'm not trying to give away all my secrets either. What if I don't get that job? It might still <laughs> Added to their repertoire because most good interviewers are taking notes and saying, Oh, that's pretty good. I like that, even if we don't hire the guy, you know. And so, I'm not going to give you my whole deal, but I'm going to give it to you in vague enough terms that I can fill in the blanks. So, you know, your offensive philosophy and how you see that team fitting into that philosophy, uh, your defensive philosophy and how you see that team fitting into that. Like when I interview with Memphis. My offensive, my offensive philosophy didn't necessarily fit what they had and how they had been playing, right? They were playing two bigs together all the time, strong post fill on the fast break, swing the ball, play out of those actions where I was trying to get them to play more five out, you know, open block for Mike Conley to attack, Marcus Gasol spacing the floor and shooting threes instead of 15 to 17 footers. So I had to show them how that worked in the interview, you know, and how your team can play a different style of basketball without necessarily losing a physical identity, you know, and show them how Zach Randolph can function in that offense and things like that. And so um, I think that's just really critical in when you're painting those pictures and, and being able to really simplify it. Uh, I think being able to speak about it in a coherent, progressive fashion. You know, when you talk they talk about things A, B, C, D, E, you know, it's really important because you're trying to paint this picture for people who aren't always necessarily basketball people, Yeah. right? They're making decisions and basketball decisions, but you might be talking to an analytics guy who couldn't play dead in a cowboy movie if it was basketball, right? So, he, you know, it's, it's, yeah. you got to understand your audience and know, like, I got to be able to, I'm coaching these folks. That was my attitude in interviews. I got to coach them. They don't know what I know better than I do. Right. <laughs> right. So that was my attitude is I'm the expert. They're the students. I have to teach them. I have to coach them. And in doing that, when you approach it that way, you really break it down. Right. We all have a coaching mentality. You know how you teach as a coach. You're, you teach that way. So teach the people in the room that way. Look at them as players and say, OK, if I was talking to a player right now, how would I explain this offense? How would I explain this defense? How would I explain my culture? And really, A, B, C, D, E, all the way to the end. And then, you know, I think at the end of it, you end up getting uh, where you leave an impression, at least, where people say, yeah, that guy, you know, his stuff. You may not get the job, yeah. but they might say, man, I got new stuff, and you stick. Coach, how about the other side of the coin where, you know, you're now hiring staff and you're interviewing assistant coaches, video coordinators, what stands out to you about what you are looking for in those kinds of employees? Well, there's some non-negotiables that I think are, are important when it comes to hiring staff. Obviously, uh, uh, undeterred work ethic, uh, work ethic that's just, you know, I don't need to drag you in and I don't need to start you up. I don't, I personally, I don't like people that if I hire them, I have to start them. Like I need self-starters. I need people that's like, Okay, this is what coach wants to do. Here's how I'm going to approach getting him ideas. Here's how I'm going to collect information. Here's how I'm going to do this. Now, obviously, I'm going to say, here's the role that I want you to play, and here are things that are important to me. But there's so much more to an assistant coach than that. And that's, that a lot depends on that assistant coach and how they want to dig into the job and study the game and steal other people's stuff and, you know, really break down the film in a way that they can really give sound ideas to the head coach that's helpful uh, and uh, that, that apply to what he's trying to accomplish or she's trying to accomplish. So I look for that. That's, that's really important for me. Um, I like innovation. Um, I like coaches that think out of the box that I like coaches that are uh, open-minded and have a growth mindset about things. Uh, that aren't just fixed on a, this is the way I learned how to play. This is the way I learned how to coach and This is it. And no, it's not, you know, every time I've even come close to thinking like that, I got knocked on my ass and had to 
<laughs> all right, regroup. You don't have all the answers. Figure it out. Right? You know, and that's yeah. that's what this game does to you. And you know, and so it's I, I really look for that in people. I love selfless people. I love people of service. People who really have a love and respect for the game. You know, people that I think, and this is for me. This is a critical, critical element uh, to being a, a really good assistant coach is uh, availability. Um, I just really feel like, you know, players have different clocks and schedules. And I've just found as being an assistant in the NBA, you know, you have to be at two in the morning. You get the call, coach, I got to shoot. I need to get in the gym. And, you know, you got to have a spouse or significant other or a single. If you're single, you're fine. But, you know, many nights I just look at my wife and she's like, I'll see you later. She already knew because she got it. You know, she understood that was part of what I wanted to be as a great assistant coach was I wanted to be available to my players. And so, you know, some of the some of the best moments I've ever had in coaching were in two o'clock morning shooting sessions where I connected with a guy on something or got a guy's mind out of, you know, being, you know, someone that's that's not confident or someone that's really struggling with the game, because usually that's. You either got a guy that's super OCD that wants to shoot that late or they are really struggling with their confidence, you know. And then the third bucket, I would say, is they got something personal going on that they don't have any answers to and they're really looking for some guidance and they don't even know how to ask for it. They've always just gone to the gym and shot and some. And so that's that's what I'm saying. I've had some moments with guys that maybe it was a divorce or custody battle for his kids or you know stuff like that where I got to talk to a guy on a human level and you know it's led to lifelong relationships now that I have you know because of the game because of I was willing to invest that time through availability and you know whether it was to shoot or talk or whatever I was there Mm -hmm. and so I just think I look for that in in a coach you know from that standpoint and and I look for people that have strengths that I don't have I think that's important. You got to be real with yourself first. Be able to look yourself in the mirror as a coach and say, "I'm not weak. I'm not good at this. I'm better at this. I can use help at this." And try to find that in staff. And then I think the last part is it's a two prong thing: is have people that's around you that's willing to disagree with you and debate with with evidence and data and and tell you no as a coach. I think having yes people around you is very dangerous and uh, c- can lead to to a to failure. Um, and so, but you have to be willing to have people around you like that. And that's why I say it's two prong. You have to be open to being told no as well. Sure. And being able to say, you know what, that's a better idea than I have. And our rule was, we don't care who has the answer. We just want the answer. Right. So get out of your ego, get outside of yourself. Like, let's get the best idea on the table and execute it. Let's not be worried about whose idea it was and have that inner pettiness that can happen on the staff. Cause I've seen it. I've been coaching. Geez. Now I'm going to sound old, but I've been coaching 23 years and I've seen that kind of pettiness tear staffs apart. And so, um, you know, you really have to be mindful of, of, of those kind of guys and, and, bringing in those kind of people because you can have the smartest guy in the world, but if he's the guy that always has to be right in the room, it can really throw your staff off. And it can really, I I mean, I've just seen guys' reputations get soured because they really were brilliant and smart, but it had to be their idea. And when it wasn't, it was just a mess all the time and it just became an ego thing. And so that's why I say it's important to have a growth mindset, an open mind. You don't have to have all the answers. You know, and I also think you got to have thick skin as an assistant as well. So as I'm telling you, I need people to battle me and tell me no. I'm probably going to tell you no, like 99% of the time, like head coach to assistant. I'm not going to use your stuff. Me and Spo, when I was a Spo's assistant, I'd go in there 99 times and he'd be like, no, not doing that. That's too wild. That idea is crazy. Blah, blah, blah. Get out of my office. Gosh, Okay. Show up the next day. Here's another idea. Here's the evidence to back it up. I didn't care that he told me no. I didn't get overly emotionally attached to the idea that, you know, because I knew two weeks have passed. 
He'll come back, tell me, hey, remember that thing you told me about, that stupid idea you had? Well, now I think it'll work. <laughs> and that's how he would talk to me because he's my boy. So we, he, sure. he does say crazy stuff to me all the time. He's like, yeah, that stupid idea you had about trapping him. Yeah, I think we should use that. Bring him. <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs> it'll be two weeks later, a week later, you know, stuff like that. So as an assistant, you really have to be, have thick skin and not get so emotionally attached to your ideas because you do put a lot of work into finding those ideas, you know? So, but you have to be okay with a coach saying no, because he's juggling your ideas, another assistant's ideas, this person's ideas. I mean, you get, he's the head coach. He or she is getting hit with ideas from players, from coaches, from front office or AD people or, well, why don't you play this person more? Why don't you do this? And like, so you, as an assistant, you really have to be okay with being told no and continue to build your, your ideas and evidence. And I look for people that like, like to present me with data and information and things that can really back up what they're presenting, you know, because a lot of times as an assistant, you just see something once and you throw it up against the wall, think it's a great idea. But if you really watch it out over the course of time and really study it, it may not be the right idea. Right. Right. It may yeah. look great once on film and then watch them run it like over and over. And you see a few other teams guard the same thing differently. All of a sudden it's like, damn, that play's not that great. And I was really fighting for it. Yeah. You got to do your homework first. Don't get a head coach a bunch of stuff that you haven't done homework on. So I like, that's what I look for in staff members. And, and obviously, you know, uh, the other stuff will take care of itself from a standpoint of how people see the game and all of that. Cause you got, you know, I always say this, you know, and my university is a testament to it, the University of San Diego. You may not have a Michael Jordan talent level where you can go out and be LeBron or Michael Jordan or any of these guys, but your mind can see the game in a way that can be on an elite level. And that comes from not only just like really loving it and having some kind of feel for it, but really studying it and watching it and over and over and over seeing different people doing different things and what they're trying to accomplish. That's the best part about working in the video room. You study every team year round cause you're the person generating these edits and you end up learning so much about systems and how to build systems and what fits you and what doesn't. And I think that really helps Paul and I. So I just think that all of those qualities are good qualities to have when you're looking for that stuff. That's great. Coach, kind of transitioning now to on the court, we'd like to kind of discuss with you about transition offense as far as your philosophy. And I guess starting with you've secured the rebound, where do you want your guys running and where do you want your, with your point guard pushing the ball, pushing up the side, pushing down the middle? You know, what's kind of your philosophy starting there? I think you really do have to, before you get into that, like really have to hammer home with your team that you're going to be a defensive team. And the only way we're going to be a running team is if we defend at a high level, right? If we contest shots, keep the ball in front of us, get deflections, steals, force teams into clock, you know, get teams taking shots from areas they don't want to take them from, really building a top a top-rated defense. And that is your, your carrot after that is to run and get the easiest baskets in the game, the funnest baskets in the game. And, and you, that's, I think you build it from there. But I think once the rebound uh, ha, has been brought down, and this is where, you know, I got a ton of criticism uh, for, for doing this. And, and it's amazing how funny things work. But, you know, I believe if you got a skill set to bring the ball up the court, multiple positions should be able to bring the ball to the court. I just think that's the NBA now. Uh, I got ripped in New York for letting Julius Randle do it. And I was like, but by the analytics, he did it more in New Orleans than he ever did it here. And just because he's turning it over right now doesn't mean he's not supposed to be doing it. You know, and it's like, so I really believe that if you have the, the guys that can do it, that whoever rebounds it should be able to push it. But I also believe in the philosophy that the point guard should still hunt for outlets. Um, I believe in the pitch ahead. I think the ball moves faster than people. Um, I really think your your perimeter guys, your one, twos, and threes, even your fours, should be fighting for corners. Um, 
you know, really fighting for corners and layups, you know, really getting up the floor, opening the floor up for the ball so that it can create attacking lanes. And one of the most, one of my biggest pet peeves are guys that slow down at half court begging for the ball. Mm -hmm. It's like, you want to come out of the game? That's a great way to do it. Like run, (laughs) like put your head down, you know, and is this a PG, um, no, you, FCC is not regulating us. You're good. Keith Baskins had a great uh, saying in Miami when he talked about running. He said, all I want to see is assholes and elbows. <laughs> <laughs> Butt in the air and elbows pumping. And so, uh, but it's true. And guys cheat it. And they don't sacrifice for each other because they think, if I don't get the ball, then what I did is meaningless. And you really have to get your team in the mindset of that sacrifice is a basket for the team. You may not get it but you are opening up so much space for your teammates and putting so much pressure on the defense. I'm, a, I'm also very okay with uh, if a big has an opportunity to rim run and put pressure on the front of the rim, uh, I still believe in that philosophy. The only thing that, I, that I've tweaked in my, you know, becoming a five-out team is that if that big doesn't have it and if he doesn't have a good matchup on the post, like if you got a mismatch, we're going in. But if he doesn't have it, he's got to get out on the floor. And we got to open that floor back up for everybody so that everyone has the spacing necessarily to execute different actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, that's how I really try to preach the game. Like I said, we we would chart things, uh, pitch aheads. We charted pitch aheads. We charted uh, how many times we got into an attacking zone or attacking action in the first three seconds of the shot clock. Uh, these are things that you can document and track and keep, you know, really to, to show your team, look, okay, when we're really running, here's our number. You know, if when we're not running, this is where we're at. And you can start building a gauge of, of when you're really flying and, and when you're not. And now you can teach off of that and you can break your film down off of that and really start to, to, to emphasize those things to your team. And then, you know, I really like to talk about once you don't have it because it's important, you know, you don't want a team that's going to get stagnant on you. And so once you don't have the, the pitch aheads, the early posts, early attacks, open attacks, now what? Right. And so I, you know, I've done many different things. I think coaches, I've seen really good coaches do a lot of different things. We've all stolen from each other. So you know, some teams get into quick pistol actions, you know, where you run step-ups and flash-ups with the, guard, the guy in front, pitch it to him and play off or come off the step-up pick-and-roll and play off. Uh, you got the drag picks with the bigs, you know, trail big is setting the drag pick. Two big setting is some teams call it 77 or double drags. Uh, Dallas made it famous or, or Don Nelson was the first to call it a 77. And uh, so those guys come into those picks. You have actions like that, aways where you're screening away, whether it's a double away for the guy in the corner or a high pin for the person in the slot. You know, just flow actions that you can get to right away uh, so that you don't stop if you don't have an immediate bust-out running action. I really think that's important, uh, but I, don't, I think it's also important that you don't introduce that too soon. Right. Because your team starts bailing out into slowing down. And no, we got to run, run, run. And I think drills uh, like, um, you know, you know, if you play with a shot clock, cut that shot clock down by like five to seven seconds and say this is how we're every time that clock resets is back to 14 and you got to play full court that way. So now you don't have a choice but to get into your stuff super fast. And so now you get in the habit of I'm running no matter what make or miss so that we give ourselves enough time to execute in the clock, even if it's not to score a layup, even if it's not to get an early, a early three or, or an early post advantage, we're giving ourselves enough time to, to, to really like move the ball, move the team side to side, get other people touching the basketball and attacking from different angles on the floor, different actions on yeah. the floor. So I just think there are ways to chart that and ways to inspire your team to do that through practice, through how you – you know, structured drills and things like that. But that's really, I would say, overall, in a quick nutshell, that's my philosophy on, you know, the running game and open game in general. 
with these actions, are these actions that you'll, you'll have calls you'll dictate or, you know, is it all reading? Yeah. I like to give my point guard a lot of freedoms, uh, to, to, to dictate what, what he sees. If I see something developing from the sideline, I might be yelling it out right away. You know, if I see a pistol action that I want to get to or something like that, or if I see a, a double away, we got a, our best shooters on the weak side. And mm. so like early on, I'll be calling this stuff on the fly so that they can see what I'm, I can build out what I'm looking at on film. Right. So I call this game, the whole game in the preseason, we get to the film the next day, I break it down and I say, okay, guys, why did I call pistol here? Okay, coach, I see what it is. We had a big wing. We wanted, we saw the advantage here. This guy doesn't guard the situation. Well, scouted it on film this is why you saw it okay why am i doubling away right now because wayne ellington is in that corner over there catch a shoot guy you know best three-point shooter on the team all that should be automatically what you're thinking when you see him over there right uh mitchell robinson my big center i had in new york super lob threat he's flying up the court got a great angle to set a great drag screen the point guard should be slapping his hip telling him come on because I'm going to get a lob for you, especially if I have a great shooter in this corner, you know, strong side. Mm -hmm. And so I give them the freedom to start recognizing, but if I give them, you know, four to six quick hitting actions that they can get to right away, right, that they know this is how we play out of these different actions. If this guy does this, then we're going to play out of this. If this guy does this and the point guard has the freedom to do it, then ultimately I like to just have one of the actions be just a basic swing the ball action. Right. We want to just get the ball changed the sides of the floor. You might get hear me standing up yelling swing or change. And now we're already in those spots anyway. Right. We got two guys up the floor. You know, basically uh, we got a trail big. We got a guy in the weak side slide. Everybody kind of float into these spots and we swing the ball and it might be swing, swing. And we're screening away. Right. It might be swing. He's denied. I come right back to the strong side and it's a pick and roll game. Right. So you got a lot of different actions you can get to that if you have consistent spacing, you will always be able to get to these actions. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, most of the time I try to make my two, three and four super interchangeable. Uh, you know, my, my four and five can be interchangeable a lot of times. So if the four is, you know, the guy that rebounded the ball and the five just happened to be way out in front, then he's got to rim run and get out and he's going to play. And my four now can trail into the trail spot because we, we'll always now have at least a size action that will hopefully deter the team from switching too much. Right. So we always yeah. put those yeah. kind of guys in the action so you don't get flattened out with a whole bunch of switching. Right. You can get triggers two on the ball force, you know, now force people to help. And now it creates ball movement off of things like that. So, uh, but I think if you could just, if you could build into your team, the consistent spacing that you want all the time and build those running, that running spacing all the time makes and misses. Uh, I think you'll find a bunch of little actions out of that spacing that fits your team or things that you like. You talked about the, the drag screen and if they have a good angle. Can you describe what you mean by what's a good angle going into a drag screen? Well, if you have guards, especially if you have guards that are not good shooters coming off the pick and roll, how are most teams probably going to guard that pick and roll? Go under it. Bingo, right? Said it perfectly. So they're going to be hunting – to get under that screen at a certain angle. So when we talk about the drag screen, when we had guards like Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, it was really important that we worked our angles. So our angle that we always tried to fight for was getting lower than the guy that's guarding the ball, right? And then when you come to the ball, you are aiming for the lower side of his hip. So basically the buttock. And you're trying to hit that lower half of his body so that he has to get over that screen. What happens a lot of times with bigs, especially lazy ones and tired ones, they will run into that trail drag and they'll come in at an angle that makes it a lot easier for the opponent to get under. Mm -hmm. Right. And now that's just eating up clock, the ball staying in the guy's hands longer. And obviously you build in actions, what we call what other teams repick may be called, we call it a twist. Mm -hmm. So if a guy went under, we twist it. We pivot it so that we got an angle again that gets to the lower half of his body. So that pivot was a front pivot, 
uh, most times, right? So we can get lower than that guy. And now we get an angle to where now that guy coming off the screen can get downhill and force two on the ball, yeah. right? So you're always trying to get two. And so the angle of those screens was always – and we practiced the same thing on our pin downs, right? You pin it down for a guy that's not necessarily a great shooter, but you want to get him into that lane, right? You got to go hit that lower half yeah. of that body and force that lock and trail action. So now when he comes off to that elbow or that high pin down action, you want him getting downhill, get, want her getting downhill. It's going to be because of the angle that you take to set those screens. So off ball, on ball, doesn't matter, you know, especially when you're talking about screening for non-shooting players. And, and you know, because that's important because everybody's not going to be a great shooter coming off of your actions. You really got to hammer home the angles that you take to get those people open. Otherwise, you'll find yourself working against clock a lot, uh, you know, and and it becomes makes your offense get really stagnant. Coach, what do you teach the bigs on when they do get a good angle and they're able to get the guard that's coming over the top of the screen rather than going under it Mm -hmm. and how long they hold or do not hold the screen before? Let's say they're a great rim roller and they can throw it up for a lob. Do you want those guys to get out of the screen quicker? I just always talked about it if you depending on what happened. So if you blasted them, I think it's important that you teach the technique of how to get off of that screen without it becoming a moving screen. Because I think guards now are are too good at flopping around and doing all of this stuff. And where it usually happens is if you set a really good legal screen on them, it's the exit plan. And so I always work on crack them. And simple exit plan. You don't have to rush that exit plan because you did your job. You blasted this guy. That big now guarding you really has to make the decision of of, is he going to help and how long. And so now you can release a little bit later knowing that you didn't create an offensive foul. Right. Now, the other thing that I always talked about looking for was if you just got them to chase over. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the, the, the teaching point on that was hip to hip. I'm out of there. Turn and run to the rim. I'm putting pressure on that basket. I'm creating a situation where I'm forcing the defense to help when I don't have the ball. I love players that create action for your offense without the basketball. So people that can draw defense, rollers, uh, uh, catch and shoot guys, um, cutters. I always think those people are, are always valuable in your offense because they don't need the ball to draw two. Or three sometimes, right? A great roller, you might get everybody in there uh, collapsing, and now you're getting open shots. That's assisting on open shots for other people. So I think that teaching point of hip to hip, if they go over the top, rim run uh, is is a great uh, teaching point. When I crack them, my exit plan is slow and deliberate, and I want to get nice and wide, show my hands at all times, so that the ref can't say I'm doing anything illegal, like pushing off or stuff like that. Did your job and really emphasize what your job is. Your job is to crack them. That's enough. (laughs) You don't need to do any more. Now you need to start finding the ball, showing your hands, and and putting yourself in position to to take advantage of the screen you set. That's why the old, what's the old adage? Great screeners get easy baskets, right? That's right. They're the ones that score. So you really emphasize that and teach that and show how, those techniques lead to it. You should be greedy about getting good at those techniques because you're going to be the one that scores a lot. Right. Yeah. Appeal to the, uh, to the, to the glutton and players. <laughs> <laughs> Coach on the rim roll, when the guy is rolling, do you teach him to re-space a little bit in accordance to where the ball handler is? Like, is it a straight rim run or is it maybe kind of banana to create some more space? Well, I just think it's where you are on the floor and how much space you have. Uh, I always like to to kind of loop out of those rim runs uh, because I, cr- I think it creates better angles um, when guys are, are, are kind of like, you know, taking that more like one step out mm-hmm. instead of just that straight line run. Because uh, I think when especially guards that are coming off in tight spaces, say you come off a really deep, tight side pick and roll, right? And, and, and now that guard is coming off right into the lane, you know, you want to take that one step and get right in line on that baseline now. So just to create as much space between you and the ball, yeah. you know, cause I think what happens sometimes is if you run too close to each other, 
it allows that one big defender sometimes, if a team is in a drop especially, to guard both. So how do yeah. you create just the right spacing of five to seven feet between the ball and the roller so that now, you know, I'm looking at it, I'm putting that guy in a real stressful situation because of my angle of attack and my roller's angle of attack. I just feel like sometimes when rollers uh, – uh, not it's non-experienced rollers sometimes will roll on top of the ball and it's just very difficult because if the lob isn't there now you got to start making you know these internal passes and and you got to really have space for those right right yeah. you may be able to get away with a lob running right next to a guy but if that's not there for some reason and you got to start throwing these shuffle passes and these little tight bounce passes you have to have good spacing on that if you want completions and so I think it's really important that you talk about the techniques uh, and work on those techniques, drill those techniques into your uh, into your bigs. Coach, this has been awesome uh, so far. Uh, Want to transition to our overrated or underrated basketball concepts? And so we'll give you the the concept. You could tell us whatever way you think, and then just you know a brief explanation uh, why either way, and we'll we'll go from there. So a really easy one for you to start. Overrated or underrated? Taking a pregame nap. Oh man, that's a tough question because it just it, it has gone both ways for me. Uh, but I tend to lean towards uh, I like to take my pregame nap. Okay. I, I, I just, at least shut down the eyes and shut down the brain. You may not be able to turn it off totally, uh, but I do think it's important to try to at least turn it off in some capacity because, you know, us as coaches, it's very difficult to hit the off button. And I think it's very help, uh, healthy to give yourself a break, especially going into the, the, you know, into the arena. How long before a game would you do the pregame nap? How many hours before? Uh, I mean, if we, you know, if our bus was, you know, say our bus was at 530 to go to a 730 game, say we were on the road, I probably I never nap more than you know an hour. That an hour would be a lot, but forty five minutes, you know, will probably be my max. And sometimes I switch it up from the standpoint of sometimes I put on my headphones and listen to a book, and I would doze off to that, not or not doze off to that, or you know I listen to some music or something like that. But I just try to always turn it off. But it'd be probably I'd give myself like an hour to get up and get moving before that five thirty bus, like. You know, take a take a shower. You know, wake up, get my stuff, and I I probably got all my stuff organized before that. So all I had to do was shower, you know, and get dressed. I'd already shaved. I'd already yeah. got my notes. You know, I've written out my notes. I got my film right. You know, everything is lined up. I've already picked the outfit I'm wearing. You know, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So all I had to do was wake up from that nap or get up from that meditation or rest. Uh, I would do headspace sometimes, you mm-hmm. know, um, and whatever it was, I'd get up and then I'd, I'd get going from there. And I, I just think it's, uh, for me, it, it helped me because I, I, I was, I just found myself always on. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so I just had to like start turning off. And, uh, A fun follow up. And you said your outfit. How many suits do you have to have for an 82 game season? Now, see, I'm probably the wrong folks to ask because, you know, Spo used to say I pack like a Navy SEAL, like uh, or like a criminal on the run. <laughs> because I was fine with, I could wear probably four suits and be good, but my wife would often change my suit out just so I would have to change. I don't like thinking about what to wear. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. I'm one of those guys like I watch CNN. Chris Cuomo wears black and white. He looked like the men in black every single night. Like if I could do that. I would be great. Like that would be my ideal. But I do have a wife and my wife <laughs> wants to see different colors and patterns. And, you know, she wants the suit to look fresh and whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I will change it up. So I can't give I'm probably not the best person to ask. Uh, that question too but uh you know realistically you probably need you could get through it i think if you really like was a person that kind of felt in the middle i would say you can get away with it with like eight suits okay (laughs) six to eight suits yeah (laughs) trust me when i was a young guy in the league 
and I couldn't afford those suits, uh, I would get away with it with probably four suits, <laughs> like five shirts. And yeah, it's mix and match. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got from my grandpa at a time. <laughs> right. This guy never gave me back. I wore somebody's <laughs> after high school graduation and it just stayed in my drawer. Like, I was one of them. Yeah. Yeah, you grind it out. That's you, good. Know, you grind it out as a young coach and you mm-hmm. figure it out. And, and you go go to some of them discount stores and you'll be just fine. <laughs> and you'll, yeah. you'll be just fine. You don't have to spend a lot of money to look professional and clean and don't feel like you got to be the best dress coach out there either. You know, or as funny as hell. No one, a lot of people from the Heat won't admit this, but uh, we went to China. Um, I want to say the second year of the Big Three, and uh, Shane Battier had a, you know, his shoe company was over there, and uh, he had a tailor, and the tailors came over to the hotel, and I probably bought. 15 suits at 125 bucks all <laughs> tailored yeah that's 125 no. i wore those suits forever i wore them through the finals they were great they were durable they looked all right on me yeah i just gave those suits away to somebody it hurt my heart to hand them over <laughs> that's awesome 125 bucks a suit we had uh the shirts weren't as great they were 25 bucks a shirt shirts didn't last as long but the suits were fantastic, and all of us had them. So, uh, you know, you think here it is, these so-called rich guys, they, went <laughs> gyms, they got all this money, we're wearing the cheapest suits in the world. So, you know, don't feel like as a young coach, you got to try to break the bank to look the part. You know, have Okay, um, Coach, moving <laughs> forward here, my over-under is um, ice defense on a side pick and roll. Overrated, underrated. <sighs> Man, there's so many arguments to be made on, on what it is. I really think a lot of it, I would say, I say it's underrated. I would say it's underrated because I do think it's something to, if you have the team to do it, to keeping the ball on one side of the floor. Uh, I do think there are so many variables into the, to either argument, but when you, I do think when you can pin a team on the side of the floor, you got the guards with the wingspan and the physicality on the ball and the technique to keep it there. Uh, you got the right teaching points of deflection. Uh, and, and that's one of the key things that's in your system. Uh, I think the ice t- lends towards to that. Um, I think uh, it allows your weak side to get a lot more aggressive, especially from the nail, right? And, and really coming into those passing lines, if you really get a good ice, uh, it keeps your bigs at the rim as much as possible. Uh, if you got bigs, you know, that you don't want getting exposed too far out on the floor. Uh, I think it also lends itself to, to really timely traps against the sideline. If a team is being really, you know, getting the rhythm of going against your drop, your drop, your drop, all of a sudden now you move that big up and you can jump them and just throw off the rhythm of the ball handler a little bit. So I do think keeping it on the side has that, but there are some things to getting the ball sent up that are quality too. Yeah. You know, if you screw up a ice, it's a layup. Yeah. Right. Right. right? You're asking a guy to go to the rim. So listening for the call, getting into the ball, you know, letting your, letting your ears, you know, do the work for you. Your teammate is your eyes and really trusting that call is important because what you see the breakdown a lot that happens is either that guy never gets into the ball and it always gets over the top because they don't trust or they jump into the ice too soon and there's nobody there and that guy's walking to the rim, you know, getting a layup. So, you know, really addressing that trust issue in there, I think, is important to building a good ice team. Uh, but you can see it's quite, I mean, multiple teams that keep the ball going up the floor uh, that are high-level uh, defensive teams, um, you know, that do it different ways. So it's, it's always one, more than one way to skin a cat. But I would say it's icing is uh, underrated overall. Besides, obviously, miscommunication, what do you feel is the biggest threat to attacking, you know, to the ice coverage in terms of, is it personnel? Is there a tactic that seems to really cause the ice coverage trouble? Always, I think the, the absolute deadliest combination to attack an ice is a shooting guard and a big that can punish you on a roll or a pop. Mm-hmm. The versatile, that super versatile big that can do either. Because uh, now you really – if you're not switching on that guy because he's so punishing in the paint and now 
you know, that guy decides to pop a few times, that puts a lot of pressure on your backside defense, mm-hmm. you know, also forces that guy that's in the drop to come up. And that's the most uncomfortable defense for a lot of coaches is really committing two to the ball early now. And now the way these teams move the ball and space the floor, now you're playing catch up a lot. Um, you know, so I know if you got a, a big that's not really mobile, that's when it becomes dangerous. And usually, you know, a lot of times teams are icing because they have those kind of bigs. And so that's where that versatile, that versatile offensive big and a shooting guard can just be night, you know, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. a nightmare for those teams uh, for that, that ice. Okay. Coach, uh, overrated or underrated junk defenses, triangle twos, box and ones. Underrated for sure. I think Nick Nurse proved that. Eric supposed to prove that is it could be a great equalizer. You know, many games I felt like, man, our defense, it was like stretches. Even when I was in Memphis, like, good God, we can't get a stop. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, we couldn't stop a, a, a five nuns out here. Like, what are we doing? Right? And so having something you can just change the rhythm of the game with, I think, you know, is very important and, and quite underrated. Um, the danger is always is is am I compromise am I compromising my principles of man to man am I am I my caving into the, the the thralls of zone defense and and you know junk defenses and and I think I think you got to give you give yourself a break as a coach and have fun you know I think sometimes we forget that as coaches that part of the fun in the competition for us is creativity and chance taking and you know, trying something different and being okay with it going bad. You know, I think if, if I can't attest to anything is you're going to fall. I've, I've fallen. I've had my falls. It's going to happen. You're going to make the wrong decision or it's not going to work out how you planned it or whatever it is. But along that journey, try some shit, <laughs> you right. know, and because and, again, players, players get in the game and they get to create the art and, you know, do these spontaneous, wonderful things that exhilarate them you know, and that fuels them as players. And I think as coaches, we have to also do some things that's fun and edgy and, and, you know, risk-taking. And I think that, you know, seeing Spo play his unique two, three with his smalls on the back line and his forward up and Nick Nurse playing his triangle and twos and his boxing ones and his pickups is, you know, he's picking up full, but he's dropping back in the zone. And, you know, it, it shows you that the game is, uh, it's more it's more ways to win a game, and it's a lot of fun ways you can do it. And, you know, I think you're going to keep seeing that more and more now with the talent that's coming out and the, the versatility that's coming um, and, and, and the really powerhouse offensive systems that these teams are creating. You know, there's some great coaches out there that's really building some dynamic offenses. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to play Billy Donovan's OKC team with all that speed and three guard offense and yeah. how do you slow that down? You better junk it up. You better, <laughs> you, better <laughs> you better put something else out there besides going man to man. Cause you're not going to be able to even catch up to them. So it's like, you know, I think it, it adds a fun element to the game and I think it is an underrated thing. And I don't even like calling it jump. You know, I, I actually just like, you know, calling it, you know, secondary or third defenses, you know, and, and you know, maybe it's not your primary, but, you know, you give it the same respect. Mm-hmm. If you give it, if the head coach gives it the same respect that he does his primary defenses, I think you got a better chance of executing it consistently. Okay, yeah, uh, coach. My last one: overrated, underrated uh, shoot arounds. Uh, underrated, I think it's. Uh, but I also think it depends on your team. I think when you got a young team, I think it's not even an option. That's mm-hmm. an opportunity to get a, a small practice in you know, really an opportunity to prepare their minds, go through the routine, see the film, you know, run their patterns of offense, build some habits. You know, in the NBA, we have back-to-backs and stuff like that. And, and, you know, you don't get to practice as much as you think. And so you use those as teaching opportunities. Uh, And you obviously got to find balance and not taking their legs away and all of that kind of stuff. But I do think uh, they are critically important to a young team. I think uh, veteran teams, you, you're you hunting for spots that you don't have to do it. 
Um, and as you know that they get it, you know, I can, a lot of times you can take, if you got a serious veteran team that's committed to the profession and really serious about winning, you can take them in a ballroom in the hotel, watch the film, walk through the sets. All right, guys, I see you at, <laughs> see you on the bus. <laughs> right. And you know that they got it. You know, they don't have to go through it over and over and over again. And, and it's literally to tell the two teams I like Memphis, it was easier to take shoot arounds off and, and just play the night before. They'll probably say I didn't take enough off, but you know, that's just the way players are. <laughs> and so, but New York, it was like not even a negotiable situation. Like I had to, there was no way around it. And I got, they used to be, come on, coach, man, let's just do that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no way. I'm like, you guys already, I, I said, I'll probably go get fired because I'm not winning enough games with you guys. I'm going to say I didn't work and pre- prepare you too. Like, we're not gonna have all of that. Like, yeah. no, like, we may suck, but it's not gonna be because we didn't work. <laughs> so, uh, I guess, you know, I was always honest with them about that. They understood it. So, I think that they're, they're better because of it. They're gonna be better workers for uh, Coach Tibbs because of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Coach, thanks. Uh, thanks for the the overrated underrated segment. You're yeah. We're off, you're off the hot seat there. <laughs> Yeah, Coach, as we finish here, you know, a question that I think you will have a good perspective on answering since you've coached, obviously, the Memphis Grizzlies, which were a little bit more veteran-laden, and then the New York Knicks, which were a younger team. As a coach, can you train leadership in a team, and how do you go about it? Yeah, I do think you can train leadership into a team. I think think it first starts with you being a good example of that, Uh, you know, I always start anything you teach, and I just believe it starts with you being a walking example of what you're trying to teach, right? And so, you know, you really have to practice what you preach, when, especially when it comes to leadership. And uh, so I think, you know, creating an environment uh, that allows players to take ownership of what's happening and, and not creating this superior hierarchy um, I do believe in naming captains, but I, I also believe Spo used to have a great saying, you can lead from your seat. And I think you saw that in the playoffs. Udonis Haslam hadn't played two seconds, but I think you saw him over there leading with full eyes and all attention because when you empower people, it should not matter if we're all in this together fighting for the same things. It should not matter who's saying it again it comes back to are we getting the right answer are the right things being said and so i really try to uh one empower them to do it and give them space to do it you know i i i point out moments in time where a leader would be valuable right and and so they can recognize the moment where you know because they're not always going to be in tuned with should I say something? Right. You know, some guys are naturals and that's just, but you also need to show people that aren't natural, especially a guy, usually it's a talented player has no idea how to lead, but he gets all the shots and he gets, you know, so you're trying to help him become this more open, you know, vocal, you know, leader. And so, you know, I just, they believe creating lanes for that is really important. I believe reading, giving them reading materials, um, you know, that, that good, good teachers of leadership, you know, it's a lot of great books, a lot of great leaders writing books. It's a great book out now called how to lead, uh, by, uh, Bernstein and the interviews like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a bunch of other people. I mean, really high level people is awesome. Uh, but it's a lot of, I, I really believe in feeding the brain. And when you do that, you know, uh, you create leadership. And, and what I mean by that is if I want my players to eat better, I don't tell, I don't tell them eat better. I show them what to eat and I show them why they should be eating it. So now they can take that information and own it and say, okay, I get it now. I see why coach is telling me to do this. It's going to help me sleep better. My body's going to heal faster. My, my, my body's going to gain muscle faster. It's going to use the food that is eating better. 
all of this stuff is going to, and, and you empower them with the information. And when, when, when people are empowered with information, they can't help but to share it. And they can't help but to point it out when they don't see it being executed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's a, it's, it's normal human condition. Like if you see something being done wrong around you and you know, it's being done wrong around you, can you not say like? Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's a plumber doing it, the gardener, like it don't matter who's doing it. If you see something is really being done wrong, you're going to go, hey, yo, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> but that's not how you do that, right? Like, so yeah. that's with anything. So now if you put them in that, in their profession, in their craft, in this thing that they love, that they're trying to be the highest level person they can be at it, and you keep taking facets of their profession and you keep feeding them that information in that way, well, what are you creating? You're creating a room full of leaders, right? And so, and and it's just really, I, I really had the great honor of spending some time with Bill Bradley, Senator Bill Bradley in New York, because he's a Nick and I wanted him to be around the team. And, and, you know, he wasn't the best player on the Knicks. This dude became a senator. You're talking about a leader, right? Like yeah. to go from being a winner on the Knicks and a good player and all of that and to being a senator it just shows you like you can be a leader regardless. And so I do that. I really think empowering your players with information that is tangible to what you want them to be leaders in is really important. You know, I was four years ago, I was, I brought in the head of the civil rights museum because I really wanted to educate my players on the importance of voting. Mm-hmm. You know, what happened mm-hmm. to get you the right to vote and what's at stake when you don't vote? Right. And really break down to them that whole and really teach them about it so that now they will become catalysts for it. Right. And what has happened now all of a sudden in this league, because there was a few of us coaches doing that then. All of a sudden now the NBA has become a total like monster behind getting people registered and in anticipation process of voting. But I really think it lended to coaches doing things with their players you know, the last time we were in this election and two elections ago and when Barack Obama was running and stuff like that, like really getting them in. But I wanted them to be leaders. I wanted them to be leaders in their community. I want them to be examples of leadership and service and all of these things. And so no matter what it is you're trying to get them to lead on, I think that the empowerment that they feel from being wise to what it is and not just telling them, do this because I say do it. Like it was told to me when I was a kid. You know, yeah. the old Bobby Knight, like, just do it or don't play type. You know, I think this generation is totally different and, you know, much more apt to get two feet in with you when you actually take the time to teach them why they are, you're asking them to do something, you know, whether it's with their body, whether it's in the training room, you know, whether it's on the court, you know, get, trying to convince a guy that, that doesn't want to play the five, but it's his best position. <laughs> you know yeah. why? You know, tell Zach Randolph. I'll give you a perfect example. Zach Randolph is perennial starter in this league, but I needed him to come off the bench, so I had to give him the why. Otherwise, my locker room could have went Phew! right. So I sat down with him and said, "This is how this benefits all of us, and this is how it benefits you." Here's the why, and I went step by step. You know, and I made mm. I made agreements that you're going to play this many minutes, you're going to be my guy coming off the bench that I'm going to force feed, and I'm going to still let you finish games. But to make Mark and Mike better basketball players, I need you to get out of that group so they can have more touches. And it all clicked to him. I said, but no, there's two sides to that coin. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, you're going to be in a group without them. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, oh, I love this. So he immediately, but the... The sale of the why is important. And I think the more you can, can arm them, because that because part of that arming, what I was arming Zebo with was his talking points to the press. He didn't even realize it. But when he got to the press and they said, man, what do you coaches bring you off the bench? What's going on? They're trying to start this. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? This is great. I come off the bench. I don't play with those two guys. You know, this is happening. I don't play against a starting center every night or a starting young power forward. Like this guy, I'm playing against the backups and I'm still going to average 16 and eight. And I'm going for, I'm going to be the sixth man of the year. Well, that was something I said to him throughout the whole process of selling him on this deal. 
but he was empowered to say it now. So now I can just step back. And he took ownership of being the sixth man. Right. And so I think you have to do that throughout whatever it is that you're trying to get them to take ownership of and lead on, empower, teach them, educate them. Don't belittle their ability to process information. Right. These kids are smart. They can take it. They can handle it. Give it to them. Let them take ownership of it. And then they'll lead on it and they'll bring other people along with them. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.